You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 153 of the Make It British podcast. Today I'm chatting with Gillian Tusting from heritage leather goods brand Tusting. This episode is somewhat of a love letter to the leather industry, so vegans may want to switch off now. Gillian's passion for the industry is evident in the way that she talks about not only the history of the five generations of the family that have seen the business evolve from a small tannery on the Buckinghamshire, Bedfordshire, Northamptonshire borders to the way that she describes the craftsmanship that goes into the leather goods that they produce today. Gillian also discusses how the last 12 months have impacted their business from helping to make PPE to dealing with exports since the UK left the EU. She also has some brilliant points to make about the sustainability of the leather industry and how vegan alternatives are perhaps not as great for the environment as people may be led to believe. So here we go over to Gillian to tell you the full story. Gillian, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. That's all right. It's lovely to be here, Kate. You're my first guest of series three. Oh. So this is, this is, yeah, this is really exciting. And also we've known each other quite a while, so I can't believe I've not got you on the podcast yet. So this is really quite a special moment. I think I, think I may have been the one that killed your Facebook Live because I think that's the last time we had a chat. We did, yes. You came yeah. on the Facebook Live back in the days when I was with your yeah. great big headphones on. That's right, my Princess Leia headphones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you remember too. This is terrible. <laughs> Brilliant. So you're... Um, Gillian Tusting, so the Tusting Leather Goods business is quite a well-known name now, a well-established heritage brand and well-known within the UK leather industry. But do you want to recap some of that history of how the Tusting brand has evolved through the years since it was very first started? Sure. I mean, the, the beginning of it goes back to the 1870s and and I I wasn't around then so I don't really know what happened <laughs> then but but um but that's my husband Alistair's great great grandfather that started it all out and he I think he was just a a pretty serious entrepreneur who was um who was just a a tradesman but he spotted that there was a huge and growing demand for leather for the for the shoe factories the tanneries had always been in this area, but the but machination, as if that's a word, you know, the sewing machine meant that there was an explosion of shoe factories arrived, and so they came to follow the tanneries that were already here because of all the waterways here, and it just went crazy. So then there were lots, lots more tanneries, and he was, you know, looking at this, going, hmm, I think there's a buck to be made here, and opened his tannery, and he did it well, and he made a, a lot of money doing it, and built you know all sorts of amazing things in the local village and um you know was a real benefactor I'd love to have been there then because I sort of slightly get the feeling that there might have been that you know sort of new money problem slightly (laughs) that you know that he was kind of trying to buy favor in the village because because he'd made so much money and he was you know he wanted to be the big man I don't know it's all supposition but I'd love to be a fly on the wall and be able to go back in time and find out what really went on um, so what village so, was that then? Because you're in the that, kind of Northamptonshire, Hertfordshire borders, aren't you? Buckinghamshire, uh, North, Northamptonshire. Northants, yeah. Beds, Buck. So Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire and Northamptonshire. And literally, you know, you walk uh, sort of, you know, like half a mile in, our, in any direction from the factory and you've got a choice of three counties. So that was in Harold, which is in Bedfordshire um, and is about three miles from where we are now. Um, and we're in Buckinghamshire, but I'm about three miles from the factory also, and I'm in Northamptonshire. So it's it's you know it's right on the very very edge, the very northern tip of Buckinghamshire is where is where the factory is, um, and that that tannery um, existed for effectively two generations, and then his grandson, um, his daughter married a chap called John Tusting, and then that's how sort of the Tusting name came into the to the family. Ah. And and um, her son, um, 
was the, the third generation and he thought he was going to, you know, he worked with his grandfather in the factory and he thought he would just, you know, be, that would be his life. But then the, the First World War came along and he went off to, to war. Um, meanwhile, you know, this is proper Jane Austen stuff. That'd be, that's why I say I'd love to have been there because in the background, whilst he was away, you know, all daring do being a brave guy in the war, um, all sorts of stuff happened and his his um his his grandfather had his wife first wife had died and he'd remarried the housekeeper if you please all sorts of scandal <gasps> and um and she was she was the wicked stepmother and when he came back i mean i you know probably embellishing a little bit here but from what we know when he came back from war she, he had died the grandfather had died and she'd flogged the factory no the money yes so he came back. <laughs> Scandal and there was in nothing. the leather industry. Yeah, I know. He came back and um, and all this was gone. Um, but rather than, you know, sort of going away to do something else, he just went, right, stuff it and start it again. So he set up a new a new tannery in the same village um, in direct competition with the one that the stepmother had sold um, <laughs> and, and knocked it out of the park. So um, Brilliant. And, and that's, that's my husband, Alice's grandfather. Um, so that was, um, if you like, a regeneration of, you know, of the whole thing. But he was the third generation and now we've had the fourth and we're on the fifth. So it isn't an absolute one company direct line thing that went along. But usually these companies have got a long heritage like this. You know, there's been all sorts of twists and turns on the way. And it's not, you know, it's not one company that was founded and has stayed exactly the same. So very much, you know, a continuation of every generation in the business, but but some exciting stuff that went on in the meantime. Um, and they were making leather, leather for, it was a tannery supplying leather for the Northamptonshire footwear shoe industry. Trip. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that went on right up until the 1970s, at which point, as you know, um, you know, the whole offshoring thing began and, and uh, th- there was a really bad recession in the 70s and it all became very difficult to be economic. Um, and and basically the tannery, um, you know, just struggled to make enough money. So they closed the tannery but carried on sourcing. So basically what they had been doing is um, applying uh finishing to half-tanned skins that, were, that they brought in from family tanneries that had been working f- with for generations also in India. So these Indian half-tanned skins came in and then they finished them and polished them yes. and dyed them and made them beautiful, perfect for the shoe trade. So what they did in the 70s was take those finishing recipes back to India and contract the same tanneries to finish them there and carried on selling them into the surviving um, shoe factories so it was more economic to work it that way um, mm. and then they went on like that until uh, late 80s when the shoe factories started disappearing by you know big number um, so you could see this is by this time this is Alastair's father and his eldest brother um, who's now retired they could see that um, you know the market was shrinking for the, for, for the leather and what could they do to diversify um, but stay in the same vein. And and to a certain extent it was that, but there was also a little bit of an accident because Alistair's father, John, who is known by everybody who's ever met him to be, you know, the most generous person on the planet and most caring person. And in the course of all of this recession, they went to a factory to retrieve some leather that they'd sold to it. The factory had gone into administration. And when he got there, he had these people who were going to be out of a job and they were leather goods makers. And I can't even remember what the name of this factory was, but he, he wouldn't have it. And he basically offered these three people, I think it was, a, a job to say, well, come, come with us. <laughs> come with us. <laughs> come and work for me. I'll find you something to do. You. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they came. How amazing. With, 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 the, with their skills and with their sewing machines. And one of them, the youngest of them, is still with us now and, and is the, the factory manager. Wow. So he obviously had the foresight to see that those sorts of skills were going to be really, you know, useful for generations to come and were something that we didn't want to lose. So that, that's it. I mean, keep you know, them in I, those think, jobs. I think I think to an extent he instinctively knew that there was intrinsic value in this, that, you know, that, that 
must go somewhere if you did it right. Um, and then the other half of it is just we can't lose these skills. You know, in the same way as you can't you can't let dry stone walling you know disappear, or you can't get you know other things that you know the making of 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 um, parchment, for example. You know, they're just skills which once they're lost, they're never coming back. So exactly. he was a bit sort of you know bloody minded in that he was de- determined they weren't going to to get lost. But on the other hand, you know, it's like right, okay, let's see if we can make something work here. Um, and that was the beginning of it. Of, of and that's that when they switch from being a tannery to making leather goods. So by leather goods, we're talking like what was the first bags. thing they made? It was, was, it it was bags, briefcase? bags, and Bag. accessories from the beginning. And 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 for uh, the following, oh, I should say, thirty years, the two have been run in in tandem. So um, we've continued to supply leather into the into the shoe factories and built up the the manufacturing business at the same time. And really, we've just now got to the point where we've got to just you know nail our colours to the mast, and we are now bag makers. So um, yeah. you know, so so that decision is is made. But um, but yeah, we've we've still been doing it all all of this time, um, doing doing both. Yeah. And are any of the, the the bag styles that you made that were made back then still in your in your collection that you have now? Amazingly, yes. I are. thought you might say that. So, which pieces is it? Um, well, there's we do a hold all called the Chellington, which is which is virtually the exact bag that it was in the original collection, and it it went away, but we brought it back as a as a sort of a heritage anniversary piece, and it's just everybody just loves it so we, we don't sell huge quantities of that one but it has a, a simpler version that we have as a weekender um which comes in three sizes and is basically the same bag but with a bit different detail and and, and it's absolutely a core item and then on the handbag front we do a little sort of uh, saddlebag satchel style bag called the cardington and it was in the very, very first collection and has never gone away. It's been in it without hesitation, without interruption. What is it they have on Radio 4? Hesitation, interrupt. You know, I can't remember, remember that, <laughs> that thing just a minute. Yeah, um, yeah it's been there all the while. Um, and so it's, timeless. And it's still a really popular bag. Yeah, and we just change the size. We do extra sizes. We change the colours. We do combinations of colours. It's been plenty of refined and so on over the years, but it's the same bag, yeah. And I bet you get people coming back for that same bag because they know it, they love it, but buying it in a different leather Mm. or a different colour. Very much so. Mm. Or you know, they say, "Oh, you've got a tiny one. No, let's have the tiny one." Or you know, whatever. But, but um, yeah, I mean, the thing with our bags is they do last a really long time. So, (laughs) so mostly it's not coming back because it's died. You know, it it it's coming back because you want another one or. Mm. something that's in a brighter colour or you know whatever yeah and of course yeah, we fix you, them too you know well I was going to say yeah. that because I came to your to visit you because my husband had bought one of your bags and I think him he puts it through his paces because he's out on his bike every day and he you know he just and he'd had it for quite a few years and then I think what was it the corners had worn yeah, out or gone worn, so yeah. Yeah, so you can replace yeah. it. There was a spell when, um, you know, one of the, the component salesmen persuaded us that um, pl- piping could be, instead of having a, a thin rope core, which is the traditional way of filling the piping, that this thin plastic rope effectively would do the job instead. Um, and, and it makes beautiful crisp piping but because it's harder than the leather it forces the corners to wear out too fast and then this horrible white plastic stuff pops out hideous so as soon as the first ones wore out it's like oh geez we'll just we'll just do it the way we know because it you know it's it's good for a reason um so thankfully I think we've seen the last of repairing the ones that had the the, the pl- white plastic piping, and it was a brief mm. interlude. But yours yours might have been one of those. I mean, the, the corners do get worn out because they get bished and bashed around. People chuck them on the floor of the car and so on, and that's as it should be. That's what we want, you know. The the products. Yeah, and part of the beauty is the the patina that they get when they have been well used because they you know you can see that it's a bag that's been loved and cherished and used for years and therefore it's an investment piece and yeah and a heritage item absolutely and to a certain extent these are meant to be wearing parts you know because just in the same way as you replace the tires on your car or you know you you get um you know bits of the engine which just wear out and you have to have new bits 
that's actually the same with the with the bags. The way that they're constructed, um, we can deconstruct them. You know, lose the, the 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 tired bits, put new ones on, and away you go again. And you haven't lost the character of the piece because the main panels will be fine and they'll have that lovely patina on. Um, but you know, a, a briefcase might need a new handle because it's just you know carried a lot of stuff over and <laughs> it's got stretched or. Sometimes the um, the you know the acid in our skin can slowly make a mess of the leather, so put a new handle on. Um, yeah, all these things are you know they're they're fine to be wearing parts. Mm. So you mentioned components there. So in the last you know forty years since you've been making the leather goods, has getting hold of the components become more difficult? Yes, um, there used to be more. Um, cast metal available in the UK um, and that has become harder it's not impossible um, there are still some you know great providers that are still still doing it but um, the, the there isn't a lot of choice of um, of hardware available that's made in the UK um, but we just have to be sanguine about that because you know it's um as long as the components are good quality and they measure up to the rest of what we're doing then if we can't get them in the UK you know we have to get them where we can um, mm. and we'll make the best decision for the product and um, but it would be lovely if these things were available in the UK because then you wouldn't have to buy gazillions of them to get the ones mm. you want you know and and um, you know also what's lovely about UK providers is if you go to them, you can often get something made specifically for you and you don't have to have a huge order for it. And the lead time is not so long. And that's the same for somebody coming to us for a bespoke item or whatever. You know, it's the brilliance of British manufacturing is 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 the response times and um, and the ingenuity, I think, you know, the, 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 the yeah, OK, we can do that sort of attitude. Um I, I hope so do you it goes on improving. Mm. That's what I was going to say. Do you think, I mean, I've certainly seen, you know, we've seen a new button manufacturer, for instance, set up in the last few years. Wouldn't it be great to see more companies actually, you know, producing things like those components? Because they are the missing link quite often mm. within all sorts of different products that you want to make in the UK. Chain. Yeah, It's yeah. The, some of the components that are that, that are that, yeah, break in the chain. How has the UK leaving the EU affected things like your delivery of components and and your leather? Well, amazingly, it seems to have had more effect on us delivering product to European customers than anything else. So um, there are some delays in docks coming into the UK. Mostly for us, we haven't had a huge problem, um, but we've had real difficulties getting product delivered to customers you know joe on the street it, you know in in any almost any european country which is is just desperately wrong and i don't really understand why they're making it so difficult because the arrangements are there the financial um you know agreements have been made and it should be the same for us to deliver something to germany now um, as it would be to deliver it to America or any other country in the world. You know, we choose to do duty paid or we choose to do duty unpaid. And, you know, one or other is is the thing. But it's just not working like that way in practice. It's really a headache. And I'm hoping that that will sort itself out. Um, it should. But at the moment, it's difficult. Yeah. So it's 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 particularly delivering to European countries mm. that's the problem because yeah. of, yeah. Is that, have you also found that you've had things turned back that are yes. being sent back? A yeah. few, a few. We've sent things out and they've sat and sat and sat and couriers offices and been sent back. In fact, I was just um, um, being told about a case today that it's three months since we first dispatched the bag and it's just and um, the poor customer has been um, ex just almost abused by the courier company with with requests for information and so on. And he's paid everything. So, you know, our agreement with the courier company is that it's a duty paid delivery. So we've charged the customer all of the duty and we are to pass it on to the courier company the way that we would if we sent a duty paid delivery to America. 
but the local delivery companies, it seems, in these European com- countries um, just are not equipped to, to, to operate this way. And they're trying to charge duty on top of the duty that's already been paid. And they're asking information about the, about the shipments that is irrelevant and not necessary. Um, and, uh, yeah, making it happen. It's, it's, you know, it's quite easy to sort of feel it's like playground peak. I, I mean, I don't know whether it is, but it sort of has that sense about it. Really? Yes. So is it, I mean, what's it done to your business in terms of lost sales to customers in the EU who may be not ordering now because they're worried it's not going to turn up? Well, there's certainly been a drop-off in ordering from the, from the EU. Um, it's been balanced by an increase in ordering from America. I think they sort of, it doesn't make any sense because Brexit doesn't affect them in any way, but it's almost like they're like, oh, you're one of us now, and you're out of, out of Europe or something. Um, anyway, they're happy. Um, and we, at Tusting, European countries were never a huge part of our export business. We, we send most to Japan, China and America um, and a smattering around the rest of the world, Europe included. So um, thankfully for us, that drop off in ordering from Europe isn't a complete breaker for us it's it's mm. irritating and it's and it's worrying but it it's not a big problem at this moment in terms of our sales figures just because it wasn't a huge portion of our business um but mm. for, some, for, for some brands it's it's all of their business and and i'm sure yeah. they're having just the same difficulties that we are yeah and how about in the uk have you seen um i mean i've been running make it british for 10 years now mm. And I, I think there has been certainly the inquiries that we're getting and the interest for buying products that are made in the UK have increased significantly, particularly since the beginning of 2021. Mm. Have your sales to UK customers increased in in those last 10 years? How do you think they've changed? I think they, over the 10 years, we were probably quite heavily um our direct business, as in, you know, off the website, would have been a higher proportion to Japan and America 10 years ago. Um, and over the course of that time has dropped off from Japan. I think that's largely because we are we have much more wholesale distribution in Japan and the exchange rate is has sort of been less favourable than it was then. And the American business probably waned a bit and is much stronger again now. But certainly we've got really strong UK domestic business um, and at the moment. And I would say that's not just since Brexit. That's been uh, building in confidence kind of since this time last year, probably. I think um, lockdown has m- meant people have stayed close to home in, in many ways, you know, even mentally, you know, in terms of where they get their stuff. Um, and and so that's been a great benefit to us. It's nice. Brilliant. We love talking to our customers, you know, down the road. It's great. It's great. <laughs> and is it that local? I mean, are there certain sort of counties that you can see, or is it is it, are the customers in England, or is it distributed throughout the whole uh, of the UK? They would definitely be mostly in England, and that's not to yeah. say that they're not in Wales or Ireland or Scotland, but the bulk of them would be in England, and. Um, they're sort of pockets, so a lot in the southeast. But then I suppose to a certain extent that reflects the fact that there are more people in the southeast. Yeah, mm. um, but we, there are obviously some enthusiasts in 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 the north as well, particularly in Yorkshire for some reason. So that's good. We, Brilliant! Know, it goes with all that tweed. Yes, yeah, and they they, <laughs> you know, they they say it how it is in Yorkshire, don't they? So when they like something and they say it's a, you know, it's jobs are good and or whatever it is, then you you've. You know, they'll tell their mates. So that's great. Tell everybody. They know good, qual- tell they know good quality and good value when yeah. they see it. Yeah. So yeah. you talked about lockdown there. How how has the last 12 months affected the production capacity in the factory? Um, well, we, um, we have done 
all sorts. Gosh, it's been a real journey actually since you know since all the sort of massive panic in March of last year, because obviously we shut down just like everybody else did completely at the outset. Not least, I might say, because Alistair and I were on our backs with COVID. So, so you know, we were oh gosh, what you had it right at the start, did you? Right at the beginning, yeah. When you know, when there was no testing, there was nothing you could do. And I, you know, I can remember phoning our doctor surgery saying. I'm pretty sure I've got this disease. How are you going to record it? Because I'm, you know, I think it's a notifiable situation. And they're like, oh, well, mm-mm. don't really know what to do with that information. I mean, literally, I think we were the first. Um, the first people in Buckinghamshire. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, gosh, it seems like a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, there was a few weeks when we did nothing and no one was doing anything and everyone was very much at home. And then um, we were uh, approached by uh, the local hospitals to help with cutting out of uh, PPE fabric um, because mm-hmm. they managed to arrange um, lots of, of local people to um, to use their domestic sewing machines and sew scrubs, right? Sew scrubs. Oh, okay. And, um, but they were really toiling all these people with, with their cutting out because scrub suits are big. You know, they're like basically one piece mm. at the front, one piece at the back. And you need a big table. But they're two metres long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you need a big table to cut them out on. And then, you know, domestically, you would do sort of two or three at a time if you had a big enough table. So what they really needed help with was cutting out. And, of course, we've got big cutting tables and, and, and chunky chunky scissors. So Alistair and I were in there layering up these 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 bits of fabric and, you know, get it up to about 10 at a time with really, really heavy scissors, you know. Um, <laughs> and then we... We um, went down and, and sequestered the, um, the, the, the automatic, the bandsaw cutting machine, basically, from our friends at Bud Shirtmakers down in Andover. So Alistair dispatched himself with the van and, um, and collected that beastie for us to learn to use specifically to cut these things out for, for the hospitals. And then it became apparent that, you know, there was a lot to, to do here. So we asked for volunteers of, of people from the factory to come in and do that because we couldn't do it all ourselves and then um all the while we'd still been selling bags online and we're starting to run out of stock so we then really had to sort of study the rules and go right okay so are we or are we not allowed to pull people in and realize that actually we were you know if you couldn't mm, work from manufacturing home and it was manufacturing and we could socially distance and everything then we actually could so we brought a few back in and basically kind of put one in each corner um, you know, in order to make a trickle of products so that we could fulfill the orders that were carrying on coming in. Um, and that just that just sort of built on. Um, we have some remaining white label um, relationships with, with other British brands. One of the, the biggest one is Aston Martin. And of course, in lockdown, you know, car sales just like gone to zero. So we have big running orders with, with Aston Martin for the luggage for the new cars. So that obviously, you know, was put on hold and to a certain extent has reduced. It's not gone away at all, I'm happy to say, but but the volumes, you know, have had a, a spell. So we've had to very reluctantly reduce the, the staffing in the factory by a small amount. So in the middle of last year, we made a few people redundant because we couldn't see the full volume coming back. Um and that was the right decision, I think, because because it, that's the case. It hasn't, you know, the volume that we were on, and we were on a building curve, you know, at the beginning of last year, hasn't come back. So, um, so it, you know, it's it's a horrible, upsetting thing to have to do. But but it, but for the business, it it was just essential. We you know we had to make that decision. Um, but you do it in order to keep the rest of it alive, you know, and yeah. and and to make an early decision on that was the good thing, you know, the right thing to do and the rest of the of the capacity has been sustained and and we are still at that capacity and still working and meanwhile the direct business, you know, the Tustin brand of business has continued to build and we worked really hard throughout the whole of last year to really push that to 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 fill the factory. Mm. Um and so that's you know, it's the basis on which we're going. So, yeah, they're actually busy, which is great. So is the, the plan going forward to increase your own brand product and, and pull back from the white label? Um, or are you still doing the white label product for other customers we, as well? We, 
we're not taking on any new white label customers. Okay, so we wouldn't jeopardize the relationships that we've already got and we're happy to carry on with them. Um, and um, in the fullness of time, you know, it might be that this whole um, ex- understanding of British manufacturing and the rise of the collaboration means that we can move on to a point where we get more recognition for what we do for those brands. Um, but that's, you know, that's a, that's a thing to work towards. Um, so in the meantime, they're ring-fenced and kept safe and we build up the, the trusting brand c- capacity. So, yeah. you know, rather than eclipse the, the white label, it will become a smaller percentage of the overall, Yeah. But you'll you'll also look at doing collaborations, mm. which is co-branded, yes. basically. Yes. So testing with yes, and, so and, that, yeah, and which I is think, brilliant. I but, think that's the best way forward for every mm. British brand because because we all have a story to tell, and 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 you bring what you bring. You know, if if we white label for somebody, um, and you know, you'll have spoken to many other brands who who will tell you the same thing. Um, you know, they're getting our special sauce, and um, they're not benefiting in terms of marketing um, from all of that five-generation story and the fact that, you know, we are as good as we are and that it actually means something to that to their end customer that they've gone to, you know, the premium luggage maker of leather goods in, in, in Britain, you know, to get their luggage. You know, Aston Martin are pretty open about this. It's not a joint-branded operation, but they do talk about it and they they would say to their customers, like, we make cars, yeah. Yeah. We make the best cars, so we're going to go to get the best, you know, accessories to go in them from the people who do it really well. And that's the right way to go forward with these joint operations, I think, you know, so that everybody understands the provenance of the product, yeah. Yeah, for too long, manufacturers have been kind of the unsung heroes, Mm behind the products but i am really seeing that changing now i'm seeing you know manufacturers that are setting up their own brands but also mm. those that are collaborating with other brands but having their name on the product as well and i think that has that has got to be one of the ways that it has to go like you say it's all the your five generations mm. of heritage and leather goods and understanding of the whole industry it needs to be shouted mm. about it does. Which and, is the reason and, for getting you on this podcast. Yes, yes exactly. Shout, shout away, shout away. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, we've all got we've all got our stories, and they they only help underline the authenticity of the product, and that means that the end consumer can go. Do you know what? This will be the real thing. I'll pay some extra money for that because because I know what I'm getting, instead of you know something which is a sham, um, and you know because if that if that provider doesn't have our story, you know, central to it, the customer doesn't know whether the product came from a fantastic factory in England or whether it, it came from a Chinese one and the, and the materials and, and so much are, are, have been saved on hugely so that the end product is far less of a thing than it would have been by, you know, by going through the authentic route. So um, mm. at the end of the day, it's surely better. You know, to to be yeah. transparent about where things have come from. Transparency, yeah, definitely, without a doubt. As far as transparency and sustainability, is it something that you're getting asked for more by your customers that you're naturally doing anyway? Showing, you know, the provenance behind your products, glimpses of your factory, telling mm. the story about the guy that has been there since the nineteen eighties. Mm. I think that's something I, you're doing more of we, now. We try to make sure that that kind of information is writ large on the website so that if people take time to look at the website they will they will get the story they will get where we've come from they'll and they'll also you know we've got a whole page about why this traditional way of doing things is the sustainable way of doing things um and it's it's not that we've invented sustainability or had to derive a method of describing ourselves as sustainable um it's and it's not even we don't even take credit for being a sustainable business what we what we want people to understand is that leather is one of the most sustainable materials on the planet and that's 
the best thing you know it's not it's it's a it's it's not an accident that it's sustainable it you know generations centuries of man have used leather for the right reasons you know way before the disposable um you know society came along sustainability was the only way to live because every little thing had to last as long as possible um and and to be as um as unharmful as possible and they didn't have hideous chemicals so thankfully they were spared making really nasty stuff anyway um and if you you know you go to a roman encampment still now they dig up leather roman sandals leather shoes. You, know? you know and they're still there and you can tell that they're leather and I don't suppose to be all that comfy anymore but you know the point <laughs> is it was an organic material it was preserved organically and it's still in existence all that time later and if that isn't sustainability i genuinely don't know what is you know so what do you say to people then that approach you and say do you do a vegan leather bag oh, um well i i really try not to not to be that anti-vegan warrior because you know what if somebody wants to be a vegan that's completely their choice and i fundamentally respect anybody who wishes to make choices about to involve animals in their life or not animal, animals in their life no argument there whatsoever where i have a problem is in this something like vegan leather okay so for a start it's an oxymoron there's no such thing um because if it's leather it came from a hide yeah if it's vegan it didn't come from an animal so you can't have both you cannot have it both ways you can have a vegan material you know a leather alternative fine but for goodness sake call it what it is and and not you know not pretend that it's leather that you've somehow managed to make without animals because that's just not a thing yeah and <laughs> and 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 the the other part of it is that genuinely these alternatives very few of them are actually earth friendly so we've established that leather actually is earth friendly at least if it's done right right yeah i mean there are some nasty tanneries still in you know far off flung corners but most of them are incredibly advanced and very well regulated and they're not polluting the environment anymore and you know it's it's done well and you're taking something which is fundamentally a waste product in the first place because nobody grows cows for their leather yeah the the cows are grown for the meat if you make the entire world vegan for sure there won't be so many cattle being raised and therefore there would be a shortage of leather because we only have leather as a byproduct of the meat industry i mean there are exotics you know snakes skins and what not that are some of them are grown for their skins but that's not what we're involved in at all and um, bulk of leather in the world is made as a byproduct of the meat industry and so if we didn't make leather out of it if we didn't recycle those hides into leather um then they'd be going in landfill you know and they and they yeah they would rot because they're organic but they would be wasted and um in the meantime if you want to have an alternative you either make it out of some plant materials fine if they if they're done well and they don't have too many bonding agents and so on involved in them then that's okay but a lot of so-called vegan leather is plastic it's plastic yeah. pu you know? pvc and i know when i was at mns leather alternatives pvc has got um really nasty like phthalates in yeah. which are kind of cancer causing aren't they yep. but because it's non-leather i mean originally when i was at mns and i was the handbag buyer there the leather bags commanded the premium mm. price and the bags made from pu and non-leather materials the cheap, ones. were the the, the cheap ones they were the they were the leather lookalikes mm. and they were the lowest price because that material was significantly cheaper than leather mm. but because they've now been marketed as a, as a leather alternative, a vegan leather, mm. she says, using mm. inverted commas, um, they're actually now being sold for more, which I think is is really, um, is, it's very confusing marketing for the consumer. It is, and, and I feel as though many consumers would think that a so-called vegan leather bag was better for the planet. And if it's, if it's made from anything to do with petrochemicals at all, it isn't better for the planet. It just isn't. No, it's as bad yeah. as a plastic bag. Yeah. yeah. 
you're yeah. actually better off at looking and, at and, yeah and ultimately the product itself won't be as good as if it was made from leather it won't last as long it won't it won't be something that you can polish and love it won't be something that could be repaired easily by a leather craftsperson um and it it's fundamentally just an inferior product and that i just think that's amazing amazing bit of misinformation that an awful lot of kind-hearted and well-intentioned consumers are being misled by yeah mm. so it's about educating them about what the leather industry and is all about isn't it exactly the tanneries in Scotland are now carbon neutral, yes, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. It's incredible. Uh, they make all the leather for the yeah. car industry, don't We've they, for the seats? That's right, and automotive, automotive and aero, aeronautical industries. So at the moment, yeah. they're bleeding. It's really tough for them because that's where their customers are, yeah? Um, and yeah. and so that's really, you know, that's really hard for them at the moment. Um, it'll, you know, the automotive industry will recover, I'm quite sure, because, again... Once you get into it, you you realise that actually cars with leather seats are the ones that last longest and are most easy to keep clean and just, you know, really have have massive benefits. But yeah, on our sustainability page on our website, there's a link through to their to their um their website and that specifically that carbon neutral pro- project that they've got. It's stunning. It's and they've invested mm. gazillions, millions in it, and it's brilliant it's absolutely fantastic and it's it should be known more about because you know they've done fantastic work to create it um and you know that's that's how tanneries can go um and you know the creating of pvc is quite and pu is quite hard to make carbon neutral the leather they produce though is a different type of leather it can't be used for things like that like tusting bags, for instance, it's can not it? It's good. made to stretch. That's, that's exactly right, Kate. So, um, but we do make bags out of it because um, it is the leather which goes in the Aston Martin cars. Um, oh, and it has to match the and seats. Exactly. And so, you know, we make the bags to match the interiors of the cars. So what we need to do with that leather, and it's beautiful, lovely, soft leather, but yes, it's made stretchy so that it is pulled tight over furnishings and the car seats in particular. And obviously you don't really want a leather that stretches out of shape for a bag. So what we do is we combine it with with stronger um, you know, more traditional bridal type leather in the in the framing and the trim of the bag. So that gives it a, a sort of skeleton. You know, give it gives it the, the the framework to hang the nice soft, you know, squidgy leather off. So you get a nice contrast. So you get and and the air trim leather is coloured specifically again in a local local tannery here, um, finishing tannery, to match the, 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 the automotive leather. So you get a bag which, you know, looks for all the world like it, it does match the interior of the car, but it's using bag technology and bag knowledge and know-how to, to, to make use of that automotive leather and display it in a way that still works as a bag. And, you know, that's, that's, that's it, isn't it? That's, that's British manufacturing in a you know, in a nutshell, is taking everything that everybody knows and delivering something that works um, to the best, you know, best way you can. Mm. How many tanneries are there left in the UK? Ooh, I think it's I like seem less to think than it's 20. 11. It's really not very many. Yeah. And the thing is, for, for our, for, from our point of view, it's about one or two in terms of making leather for that's suitable for bags because you've got that automotive thing going you've got quite a lot of really strong shoe sole leather um coming uh, coming through but they're really hard you know that stuff doesn't well specifically it doesn't bend very well because it's meant for standing on um and um and so the bit in between that's really perfect for bags, there's not that much of that. Pittards make some in Somerset. There are a few others that, 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 that make some. But sadly for, for us, we, you know, we have to source quite a lot in Europe where the specialist tanneries for that type of leather are. But, you know, it's not like we're going to, to some nasty place in, you know, in, in the Far East. Or I mean, that's not to say there aren't lovely places in the Far East, but you know what I mean? It's, it's all very regulated their 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 um sourcing is all controlled it's traceable they literally trace all the way back to you know the number of the of the of the the um the herd the cattle in the you know the cow in the herd and where it was raised and so on so there isn't um the 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 danger of mistreatment you know of of the animals or the hides or whatever it's it's 
it's all above board effectively yeah um so yeah. we're happy to use tanneries like that because they're doing it right yeah 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 so th there's no chance that the tusting family a couple of generations down will suddenly think ah we um maybe we want to be a tannery again and switch <laughs> from making leather goods and go back oh. to our original roots yeah you don't say never do you you do not say never i mean um you know i uh, um Louis Vuitton and Hermès, I believe both of them have bought tanneries in France to secure their um, sourcing of their the leather that they specialise in, in in the making of their bags. You know, so it's not that it wouldn't have been done to um, to do that, and it would be for different reasons, obviously, wouldn't it? You know, mm. but um, but if it, it came to the point where that was the only way that we could secure, you know, the source of the leather that we wanted, well, I wouldn't say it wouldn't happen. Not saying we've got any brilliant. Haven't got any plans, but <laughs> so so. Have you got kids? And because you're you obviously you've married the Tusting yeah. family. It's the Tusting brothers, isn't it? It's your husband, yes, and his brother. There, there were so, there were two other brothers involved in the business, um, but now it's just Alistair because the eldest one is retired, and and the middle one went off to specialise in shoe sourcing. So, um, so it's just Alistair. We have two children. Um, and at the moment, they're at the point like, as if, you know. Are <laughs> so, um, But that's fine, you know, because actually, if, if they're going to be of real value to the business, they need to go out and do their thing in the world for at least 10 years because um, because a family business, um, it's really hard to get out of once you get into it because because you have incredible loyalty to it. So it's just really hard to turn your back on it once you're in. So we wouldn't want them to come in too early, uh, you know, for their sake on that aspect. But also, if they do, we want them to bring some really good stuff when they come. So <laughs> Good skills, yes, different skills. Exactly. So we, they need to be out, you know, training in the world with things that, they, that they're interested in and developing their skills to find out what they're really good at so that if you know if they did eventually come back to to join the business they'd be enhancing the business you know it wouldn't yeah. just be um you know that old word that i used to learn in history of a sinecure you know a sinecure being being a fantastic you know safe job position where it didn't matter how crap you were at it you know you were going to get paid and it was all done <laughs> you don't have any many of those anymore um so i've learned yeah, a new word i didn't know sinecure, sinecure. Mm. i'm going to try and bring that into a sentence <laughs> in the coming I days there are very many sinecures anymore you know we'll have to earn our place fantastic okay so um i'm going to ask you the question i'm going to ask all of my guests this series were a couple of questions the first is what does made in uk mean to you gillian tusting mm. well there's rules aren't there they're like you know you've got to make a material difference or something like this i mean for for me Made in UK means genuinely constructed from its little bitty bits and done in a way that makes it better anyway, okay? So I do not wish people to buy in the UK because it was made in the UK if it's not good enough, yeah? It, 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 there has to be some other qualification for it to be a product. So it's a great thing that things are made in the UK and there are so many benefits to the consumer for shopping for things which have been created here. Um, but I don't believe that that's all there is to it. I, I, it's just not good enough to just be made in the UK. It's got to be great as well. Yeah? And, and yeah. because fundamentally it is expensive to, to make things in the UK, then doubly it's got to be great because it's got to be worth what it costs to make it yeah the labor to do something really well um is a bit more than to do something not very well but it's not a massive difference yeah so if you're going to do it in the uk do it brilliantly because then it qualifies you know on every count for being the the right way to shop yeah that's i think that's what it needs yeah. to be i don't want anybody to buy british just for the sake of it, you know, and then we all end up with, with rubbish products. You know, that's just not a, not a solution to anything, is it? No. no, completely agree with you. Okay, and then finally, what other UK maker or product made in the UK do you want to give a shout out to? 
we've got some really quite exciting projects coming later in the year that that are to do with that are collaborations with other with other UK makers, and um, so I'd love to be able to shout them out, but I can't because it's too secret. Um, <laughs> But but those that are genuine like us, I think, are the ones that, that I absolutely love. <clears throat> so others that have been around for ages, you know, the fantastic netware manufacturers, things like that. So, you know, Jen, Johnson's of Elgin, like they're way up there mostly. I mean, they're in the border, Scottish borders as well. But those I love, I love those manufacturers that have stuck in there and survived through thick and thin and make this beautiful, beautiful product. When you think, God, they're so expensive. But actually, when you get it in your hands, you realise... No, it's actually not expensive because it's just delicious. You know, you can't not handle them and all that sort of stuff. I think what I'd like to say is I don't want to give a shout out to anybody who's pretending to make in the UK and being a terribly British brand when in fact they're not. They're just designed in Britain or marketed in Britain or something and they're waving union flags all over everything and it's not made in the UK because that's really mean to the consumer, you know, as well as us, frankly, just... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's what I call fake it British. Mm. And it's not fair on the genuine manufacturers that make in the UK, yeah. like yourself, Gillian. So you've been a wonderful guest on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, you so much for, for coming on and telling us all about the leather industry. It's fascinating. And um, yeah, when, when the dreaded lockdown is all over and people can go about their normal business and we've nearly forgotten it ever happened, it'll be fantastic to welcome people back to the factory because that's one of the things we love is, you know, is, is getting people on our open days and so on and just showing them, you know, what goes on. And we'll get back to that. I promise we'll get back to yes, that. Yes, of course you do your open mm. days. So where's the best place for people to find you? Oh, before then. social, social. I mean, we're just at Tusting everywhere. So, you know, so that's, I mean, if people haven't followed us on social, please, please do, because it, it, <laughs> the more we, the more, the more reach we get on social, the more we can, you know, share the real stuff, which, you know, which is what we want to be able to do. And also it just helps us communicate what we are doing, when we're doing it and when we develop something new. Um, and normally we have an open day on the bank holiday, August bank holiday, and it'd be really nice to think that we'd be able to do that this year, that this would all be... I think off, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so people should sign up to your mailing list, should yes, they, to be exactly. notified. Yes, exactly, and then they'll, be, then they'll hear, yeah, for, for certain, sure. Great. Yeah. yeah. August Bank Holiday. People are going to be dying to go out. I'm I'm dying to go out and visit some factories soon, so... Yeah, well, come to us. You might see me come at your August, Bank, yeah, your August Bank Holiday sale. Yeah, awesome. Brilliant. Thank you, Gillian. Oh, You've been a wonderful guest. Thank so you. It's so lovely to chat. Thanks for asking me, Kate.